You're listening to Season 3, Episode 1. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Shop. I'm Therese and I am a business mentor who specialize in helping my clients grow their wholesale. On Let's Talk Shop, I speak to business owners, brand owners, buyers and industry experts to share how it is to work in the industry and sell in the industry and what buyers and sellers can do to build a relationship with each other. Since we are in such unprecedented times, I am changing it up a little bit for season three and I will be speaking to business owners from all sorts of businesses and hearing their stories how this time has affected their trade sales and their retail sales and what they're doing to keep their businesses going because I think that is so inspiring right now seeing all these businesses pivoting coming up with new and innovative ideas changing their messaging and doing everything they can to keep their businesses going and I find that really inspirational and I hope that it will inspire you too. First up is my conversation with Elizabeth Stiles and Catherine Erdley and we wanted to give you a little bit of a glimpse on what it might look like at the large retailers right now. There is a lot of suppliers that are getting a lot of demands and change terms from large retailers out there and I think a lot of people feel that there is nothing they can do about it and it's just being passed down further and further down the chain which is a bit of a shame but we'll get into that more in the episode. I want this podcast to inspire you to take action and feel like there's other people in the similar situation to you that and that you can do this because you can do this and this is turning into a really cheesy introduction but I really do hope that you feel that you're not alone in this and if you are struggling and if you do need someone to talk to even if it's just for a little bit of a brainstorm then do make sure that you reach out to me because I think we are all in this together and we are all fighting to make our businesses survive. We'll head straight into the episode but if you do enjoy this podcast, please can I ask that you go over to iTunes or Apple Podcast and rate and review this podcast. And if you want to make sure that you don't miss out any more episodes, then please hit that subscribe button. And here's my conversation with Elizabeth and Catherine. Hi, Catherine and Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on Let's Talk Shop. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This will be a bit of a different episode. I haven't ever had two guests on that is not in the same household before. (laughs) (laughs) So this is an experiment, but I thought it would be really interesting because had we been in our last roles or previous roles, we would have probably been dealing quite a bit with each other at the moment. So. I thought we'd start off with you guys introducing yourselves and what you do now. Sure, I'll go first. My name's Catherine Erdley. I'm the founder of Future Retail Consulting, and I work with creative product businesses to grow their sales and manage their stock. 
Yeah, and I'm Elizabeth. My background is in fashion buying. So I've worked for um, companies like Next, Miss Selfridge, Asda, Urban Outfitters. Um, and then I worked at a supplier as well, which was seeing the other side of the business. So rather than buying in from suppliers, I was selling into the buyers. Um, they call it the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm now a fashion brand consultant working with independent businesses on their trends, manufacturing and marketing. That's great. Thank you. And in your previous roles, what were your responsibilities? So my my career for 17 years before I left and started my own business in 2018 was in merchandising. So there are three product teams within a typical retailer. There is the design team, the buying team and the merchandising team. And people are fairly familiar with what the design and the design team or they can imagine what the design team the buying team do but merchandising is really concerned with all things to do with the budget so the in nutshell I would say it's how you get the creative ideas to make money so for example uh, my most recent role before I left the corporate world was in paper chase I was there for a few years and I was heading up the merchandising team for stationery and art So my role there was to trade the business, so to look at the sales, to come up with strategies to grow grow the sales, to manage the stock, to keep an eye on the budgets, to assign the budgets to the buyers for each season, for each collection. So basically, if a buyer wanted to buy a notebook, then I would, or someone in my team would give them direction on how many to buy, when to bring it in what the target cost price needed to be, um, where we were going to send it. So basically all of the kind of numbers piece related to the product. So how is that different just quickly to what, like, you know, the finance team does? Just because I think that that's quite difficult for people, uh, you know, like I always wondered that when I was started out. Yeah, no, it's a great question. The finance team and the merchandising team really work hand in hand. So the finance, but the finance team, generally speaking, are not involved in product strategy. So the finance team would be running the overall cash flow for the business. They would be looking at the the income coming in from sales the profitability of the business but then they would also have a handle on the tax implications and all of the other overheads and staff costs and everything else that goes into making the overall financial picture of the business but they would rely on the merchandising team for a steer on things like the sales forecasts the profitability so I would have to um, submit to the finance team uh, what we believed the sales were going to be, what we believed the profitability level was going to be. And they they might say, you know, the target for the overall company is 100 million this year, but they would never say, and it's going to come from notebooks because that's been on trend. We're going to sell fewer pens. You know, they wouldn't get into any of the strategy of the product. So they they their role was the was the sort of complete picture whereas merchandising was was really it was relating to the the profit coming in and and all of that strategy so they will give you you will tell them what you need in terms of like to make certain sales and they will give you money and you will allocate that out to the buying team yeah or... it wasn't even really it, or it was actually more in, you see there's there's two, there's two different ways 
that they would generate a forecast. That we call that a top-down and a bottom-up. So the top-down would be that the, at the board level, the CEO or somebody would say, right, sales, sales need to be you know, uh, 110 million this year. So it was kind of like a banner number that they came up with mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. Sometimes it was because they were feeling bullish and they wanted to go for growth. Sometimes it was because they knew that there were growing costs associated with the business and they wanted to offset those. Um, maybe it's because they were excited about a new initiative that they were running, but basically there would be like a top line number. But then what we would do would do a bottoms up, which would say, okay, so, uh, you know, based on this, we think stationery will be X amount and this is how we think we're going to get there. And we'd kind of go through all the individual departments and look at what was, what was trending, what wasn't trending. We would, put together what we call the building blocks where we'd literally say right we think we're going to refresh this core range that's going to give us an extra x amount of money so we kind of really comb through all the details and what you mm. hoped at the end was that the top down and the bottoms up was the same number <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but and you sometimes did have to push back because sometimes they'd tell you a number and you just would go I just don't see how we're going to hit that um, and sometimes you would say actually I think you've not I think we, I'm feeling more bullish. So it would depend. It would kind of go back and forwards. And then from the, um, usually what would happen was from the, the sales forecast, we would then calculate what budget we needed to, to hit that sales forecast. And then we would tell finance, in, you know, we think we're going to spend five million pounds in March, um, seven million pounds in April. You know, we would basically, we would tell yeah. them, they would it was always back and forth it was like tennis because then they'd run it through their cash flow and say well actually that from a cash flow perspective that's not going to work or you need to phase your deliveries differently so we were kind of back and forth but then usually once we agreed on not just the total amounts but the the timing of the different amount amount uh, deliveries that we were having coming in then often they would lock that down so then it became really clear targets so there was like always a back and forth where you could kind of say yeah all right let's move that intake from March to April or whatever but then once that was set then then the job became you had to bring that five million pounds in in March if you told finance five million pounds was coming in and then you brought in six million pounds then that's when you got fired (laughs) (laughs) not that I ever got fired just to make that clear but you know you know that was kind of the game if you like it was like the back and forth and then you yeah. had to, you know, and, and, um, sorry, I feel like this is a very long explanation. No, I think it's good because it means that we can talk about more what might happen now. So I thought yeah. it was good to establish what that meant. Yeah. Cause sometimes it was, um, the other thing that they would look at was as well as agreeing total budget amounts that you could bring in, that you could spend, which was then what we passed on to the buying team is the budget. Um, they would also there would be cash numbers that basically the closing stock for a retail business is a really key indicator. So, um, so you would have a sales plan and an intake plan, and that would mean okay, at the end of this month we should have twenty million pounds in the business, for example. Um, mm. But of course, if you don't sell that stock, then that's yeah then your end your month end stock goes up so you would have to then cut your intake to hit that month end stock it was like those month end stocks were like gateposts you had you know like you had to hit them you had to get to that number 
whichever way that worked. And what you hoped was that you sold what you were expecting to sell or more. But if you didn't, Mm. you then had to look at ways of cutting back, either growing your sales by discounting or coming up with other offers or whatever else, or cutting back your intake so that you could hit that. It was all about hitting that stock number, stock cash stock in the business. Yeah. Well, that's good because I think that will help us understand later what will happen. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, what, what, tell us a bit more about your role. Yeah, so um, like I said earlier, I've had two roles within the industry. One was at a buy, uh, as a buyer um, and I worked on loads of different sizes of teams. So say at Next, if me and Catherine were both to work in the same retailer, we would have sat opposite each other. So answering your question earlier about what the difference between merch and finance, like merchandisers actually sit with the product team and have like day to day input on what's going on. And Catherine would essentially give me a budget to spend and uh, which she still does now in some of the brands. That we work with. <laughs> um, and then go away and um, say, make sure that you've covered off this bestseller from last year um you need to have this certain amount of long sleeve tops you need to have a certain amount of like color breakdowns you need to have a certain amount of things that like cover the bum for example there's like all these things that you need to tick off so Mm. you're taking that money and then breaking it down but then equally you've got on the other side of me uh, it's like the little devil and angel on the shoulder of um, (laughs) I won't say which one's which got uh one side saying let's look at the history and then the other side saying let's look at the future and trying to balance those two of making sure that you've covered off your best sellers but equally covering off like what's coming off of the catwalks what other people are doing like making sure that you're always up to date with your competitors um and then also like pulling all that together in a range build as a whole team making sure everybody's happy and then costing it So just asking the suppliers for cost prices on everything that you've agreed to put in that range and making sure that it then works out to be a commercial sale price. And some people always say like, oh, how how do we decide what to sell it for? And I'm like, "Um, make it up. (laughs) That's what we need to do. Um, And we just say, what would you pay for it? You know, sometimes you do a floor walk and go around the product teams and say, what would you pay for this? What would you pay for this? What would you pay for this? And then you basically take that price and divide it by about 3.5. And then that's your target cost price to go back to the factory and negotiate with. Um, And then when I was at a supplier, it was a very similar role. So I was still range building. I was still costing. I was still managing deliveries. But instead of being the middleman in between a designer and a merchandiser, I was managing the factory and the retailer. And the way I kind of described my job was I was walking down the street and um, like say New Look lived on one side of the road and the factory lived on the other side of the road. And I was like the messenger sort of passing the messages back and forth. Um, So for every topic, every email, we had two emails for everything. So I've literally never had so many emails in all my life. And so the factory would give you a price and then we would add our design commission on top of that, pass it back to the buyer. Then the buyer would give their target. We would renegotiate that, send it back to the factory. So it was literally back and forth all the time. Um, Or sometimes the buyer would 
give us a design brief and I'd work with our designers in-house to create that specifically um, for that buyer. Um, and yeah, I had a sales target of about 10,000 10, units a week to book. And sometimes I hit it and sometimes I didn't. But <laughs> so I, by the end, like once you get your confidence going and you're essentially a sales manager at the end of the day. Like, yeah, you know, I was going to say, it's very similar to yeah, um, the way I worked with like on bespoke projects um, where we created things for customers. Mm rather than off the peg yeah sort of yeah yeah and you know like half the job then is managing production as well which is an absolute yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get onto this at the moment because it's like managing delays from factories things going wrong during production things being late and then having to relay that to the buyer which is so fun whilst like trying to maintain a good relationship with them <laughs> and still get them to buy more from you for the next season so it was stressful, but I, I kind of like buzz off of the stress a little bit as well. Yeah, I think it benefits you now that you've had both sides of it. Yeah. Because I, uh, well, my role is obviously in sales, but in my last role, I also did some buying and because I managed a wholesale division for a publisher. So we sold our own published books as well, buying from loads of other publishers that we can then sell on mm. so you know I think it's interesting to see both sides I think yeah definitely when I first got the job I was like I don't know how to do this and then I was like oh no I do it's just the exact same job but the opposite <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. used to hire ex-buyers to be account managers because you're essentially working with buyers every single day and You've yeah. been one. You know how you know how bad they can be. <laughs> Why they are the way they are. So um, yeah, you know how to manage them. Yeah, in my, in, I guess my sales role would look very different to your latest position. Whereas you know we would go out and sell whatever our range was for the season, mm. and our job was to hit our sales targets. Obviously, so it was very similar but the opposite end of the scale I suppose yeah but we might have all sat in a meeting together where yeah, you know definitely. we we would have Catherine would have said oh this is how much we sold last <laughs> year this is what we're predicting will happen this year and <laughs> Catherine would have said no there's no budget to get money out of you guys <laughs> yeah 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 but so what does that then mean in like what is happening right now? Because I think that in the trade news, we hear a lot about it. But I think if you don't really follow trade news and you run a, a you know, a small, smaller brand or a smaller business, you might not have heard, you know, you, you might not really know where you stand with these larger retailers if you just started working with them, what's going on. And it might all be a bit confusing because they do take a lot of um, liberties at this time mm, of the yeah. um, this pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a lot of demands. So what would that have looked at in your respective teams? Yeah, I mean, starting from merchandising, I mean, this particular scenario is, I mean, it's just completely, um, um, well, 
try not to say unprecedented. I feel like that word's been used a lot recently. But, you know, this is so basically what happens is when you're when you're a merchandiser, you're running usually sort of two to three different scenarios. So you have the one that gets submitted finance, um, which you probably generally would slightly underplay because you want you, you know, you always want to exceed your targets. Um, and then you probably also would not be giving the, your full budget out to the buyers. Usually, I would. Would it depend? Depends how far out from the actual buying cycle we were. But to, certainly to begin with, if you knew that you had eight million pounds to spend in a certain month, you'd probably tell the buyers they could spend about six or something like that. <laughs> Because, you know, things always come along that look great, that you want to have the money to react to, or or sales maybe don't come in as well. So you want to have that, basically trying to give yourself as much wiggle room. But in this particular... Mm, based on that as well, on um, when we were at Next, just to that point, we would always leave the number one best-selling thing to be unknown, because the later you book it, the more evidence you've got as to what will actually sell. Um, mm. So we would never fill that top rank spot with anything because we knew it would never be something from like China that we'd have to book really far in advance. It would always be something that we'd have to book close to home because it's like, like Catherine said, we'd see something in a magazine or a catwalk and be like, oh, we have to have it. And if she'd like given us all the money at the beginning, we'd have no money left to spend. Because so. <laughs> um, you yeah. want to spend all your money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, it's like anybody isn't it it's like and it's, it's in your own life I'm sure everyone at payday that's why payday is a payday spike because everyone goes woohoo I've been paid yeah. <laughs> and off they go but I think what's happened now presumably is that the nobody's worst case scenario forecast looks like what's happening right now like nobody runs a worst case scenario that says the entire store chain gets closed you know so mm. and it depends some businesses have but even even a even a business that has a really high level of online sales as a percentage of the total sales of the business, they're probably looking at maybe 40 to 50% of their sales coming from online. And that is that, you know, for a store chain, for a big store chain, that would be a very high proportion. Um, Mm. You know, and some people will have only been getting 10% of their sales from their online store or 15%. And now that's all they've got. And actually, even some of them, they've not even got that if it's no longer trading, you know, next to close their online store, Mm -hmm. for example. River Island, yeah. Oh, right, River Island as well. So, so you've gone from this situation where nobody, no merchandiser, no, no finance team has got a worst case scenario that looks like right now. And so what's happening is, is that any stock that's coming in, the reason that a lot of them have just put a halt on that stock is they're trying to do whatever they can to protect their stock position. Because you can imagine that you had a sales plan in of £10 million for this month, and that's not happening. Then that means that at the end of the month, you're going to have £10 million more stock than you intended on having. So... Mm. So the scramble that we're seeing where people are just cancelling things left, right and centre is people trying to protect. It's just that they've got, you know, even if they've, their website's doing better than normal, it's still not going to pick up the the slack left by the fact mm. the entire store closures have happened. And, and I don't know if they're able to move stock from their stores to their website or they'll be able to fulfil from stores. But, you know, they have got plenty of stock to do the sales that they're currently able to do. So that is why 
we're seeing this kind of knee-jerk tap turning off. They're doing what they can to 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 mitigate the a complete disaster, basically. I mean, this is just totally... There's also like warehouse space to consider as well, because say um, normally there's stuff going in, stuff going out, in, out, like say one in, one out. But if nothing's going out because they've shut the warehouse, they can't have loads more coming in because there's physically nowhere to put it. So I don't blame them for cancelling it at all because they have to. They need to stop the flow. Um, But what I do have a problem is with is the way that some brands are doing it. (laughs) Um, And going back to having seen both sides of it, you know, some of my friends that still work at suppliers have just said, 300,000 orders cancelled, like deal with this, phone down, bye. And that is just so unfair because they're saying, oh, we'll come back to it when we reopen. But if you're just expecting all your suppliers to take on board that pressure and that financial burden, then there won't be any suppliers for them to go back to. Yeah. Um, I mean, suppliers have small margins anyway, let alone like that, that burden. The other thing I was just going to say as well is that just something to remember, if you're dealing with a buyer or a merchandiser um, in a big retailer, big retailers in general are can be pretty toxic places to work. And what they're really, really good at doing is pushing the blame. Like, you know, something like this happens, which clearly nobody has any control over. But they have a habit of doing things like saying, right, well, your target hasn't changed. You still have to hit that stock target. So what are you going to do about it? So, for example, one of the um, a story I'd heard from somebody who worked for a big fashion brand when Brexit happened and the um, exchange rate dropped through the floor, they just brought them all, all of the buyers into the room and they said, you still have to maintain the same market margin that you were maintaining yesterday. And everyone says, well, you know, how are we supposed to do that? You, the, the exchange mm-hmm. rates just dropped. And they and the answer was, that's what we pay you for to figure it out. So for, chances are, if you're dealing with someone who's a buyer or a merchandiser, they are probably under a huge amount of pressure because I'd love to think that the retailers would say, okay, guys, we're all in this together. You know, let's just work it out. Let's do what we can. But the reality is a lot of retailers are probably turning around and saying to their teams, we still need to hit this stock figure and you've just got to make it happen. So um, I think that when people are under that kind of pressure, it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make for a particularly pleasant experience for anybody. Mm. No, it's really, really t- tough, I think. And I I, th- I understand maybe cancelled orders or delayed orders and unconfirmed orders. The, the bit that I have the most problem with is all the retailers are saying, well, you already delivered this, but we're not going to pay you until we start opening up again. Yeah. yeah. Or we're not going to pay you. We, we're going to pay you, but we're going to pay you in... 60 days or 90 days 120 days extra on top of what we you already given us and then we're going to take 30 percent discount on that yeah that i have a much more of an issue with than cancelled future orders because that is hard yet of course that can be terrible for a smaller business but it's even worse when you already delivered the stock and you're not getting any money for that, but you mm-hmm. still have to pay your suppliers. Yeah. I think um, on that, like I, 
I'm really seeing this as an opportunity for small businesses, just so it's not too deep and dark. (laughs) Because a lot of factories will have been like dropped through the floor, like you say. And for the people that can actually check in with their suppliers, even if you're not promising any orders, but just picking up the phone and asking them how they are during this time, if they can remember that you were the person that reached out to them just to check in on how they were or how their family is or like how the situation is panning Mm. out for them, Mm. that will speak volumes because this whole retail business, everything is down to relationships when it comes to wholesale wholesale relationships, supplier relationships, relationships within each other's businesses. Um, If you can just be that person that can reach out, like I genuinely do believe that when things get going again, they might think, oh, you know, Therese reached out to me during a really rubbish time. Let's put her orders on first and then we'll focus on everyone else afterwards. So where a factory might have been too expensive in the past or they were too busy with capacity or their minimum orders were too high, like maybe try and reach out to them again now and say, oh, I appreciate obviously the situation. Or again, with your wholesale orders, like even if they have cancelled, try... I know you're also a small business, but just try and deal deal with the situation with some compassion. I think when this is all over, and it will, of course it will come over, like I do think that people remember how you made them feel during this time. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I completely agree. I think now is not the time to think, I'm going to focus on other aspects of my business completely. You need to do that as well, of course. Yeah. I think you need to stay visible. It's all about making that human connection and actually saying, I care about you. Like it's the same little things. Every Christmas in a sales position and a retail buying position is always a bit stressful. Like mm. yes. I used to always send Christmas cards to everyone like that would be the QA team the warehouse team the labeling team like everyone in the chain rather than just my buyers Mm. I I had very few finds yeah because they had a relationship with so many of them I think that this time of the you know like nurturing all those relationships with all the departments you come across with your retailers whether it's a small retailer where there's you know the owner buying or if it's a larger one where you usually talk to people because they might actually have something to contribute you know like in lots of big retailers there's always a, a um quality control or someone that checks your products in yeah. And, you know, if you know them a little bit and you, they know of you and they know that, you know, you would call them and ask them instead of just sending in things with mistakes on them, mm. then maybe you will get a little bit better treated back. Yes. And now having worked at Supplier, I can tell you it does work like that. <laughs> <laughs> Buyers that would pick up the phone and shout, of, where's my orders? Where's my samples? Where's this? Like, I just think, what kind of incentive do I have to work for you? Uh, whereas yeah. the girls that would ring up and say, oh, do you mind getting this out for me on this day? Like, I'd be so grateful, blah, blah, blah. I would do that in a second. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Like, we used to, like, the, you know, sometimes things are delayed. Things are delayed. It happens, right? Yeah. But for our customers that we liked, I've gone and picked the orders myself in the warehouse, mm. you know. <laughs> um, 
I think personal relationships has never been as important as it is now, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree. Well, wasn't it from your retail summit, Catherine, the main thing that you got out of it was a human-to-human situation? Human-to-human, yeah. No longer business-to-business yeah. or business-to-consumer. It's human-to-human. And mm-hmm. it is so true. It's it's, um, And I think that, you know, and I do think, I wonder if there will be also a big shift towards, I, I think, what's interesting about this situation is that I do think there will be an acceleration in the trend that was already there in terms of conscious consumerism and supporting Mm. smaller businesses because sadly I think a lot of the big businesses have um what they've done is they have they obviously they've been trying to protect their business but they've been using their clout and the fact that everybody once you know if you're a big retailer and they're used to people jumping through hoops for them because they hold all the cards so I think what they've done is is where possible pushed the pain downhill as it were as much as they can by saying right that's cancelled that's those orders cancelled but you know you're talking about humanitarian crises in Bangladesh and India because of this impact and I just I wonder how much this is going to become into the into people's consciousness even more and when this is all over then will it have accelerated that movement towards small businesses who really tried to do the right thing during this time and really um you know thought long and hard about their supply chain how they could work with them how they could support them Mm. and I and I just think they may I, I understand the mechanism which has made them do this but I just think it's it's going to be something of a scandal in a way it deserves to be a scandal because it's terrifying what they've done to these they've just basically picked on this it's like picking on the weakest person isn't it it's like mm-hmm. I, I I'm so surprised that there hasn't been no more talk about that in the media yeah I agree um because there's so many people where you know people are saying oh I think just before that we we started this call uh, Drapus had a new thing about that Debenhams has gone in. It's just like preparing for a new administration, and that, that is what people are talking about. It's you know all these giant high street chains not paying their zero pay in, um, our staff or not doing right by their suppliers and stuff, but they're not looking at how that is impacting people further down the chain mm. at all yet. Yeah. yeah, I think it will definitely be coming. Yeah. I, I was saying the other day as well that you can see it in the supermarkets already because we always talk about um, how trends work, where it affects food first, then clothes, then home. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you can see in the supermarkets already that there's too much food there because they've panic bought um, or people have panic bought. So they now don't need to buy anything. But the supermarkets have filled it with food because people have panic bought. But now, mm. literally, you'll go into any supermarket now, well, where I am anyway, and there is so much going off and like loads of meat and fish, which is so sad um, that all this stuff is just going to get thrown away because the, the supply chain is just so, it, it's all messed up. Um, mm. yeah. They can see even just one trip into Sainsbury's that is like multiplied by a hundred when you multiply the size of the garments and the cost of the garments and um, like each individual unit. So I thought it was just quite interesting seeing it's already happening with food because everything's obviously on a much shorter lead time. Um, Mm. And that's what will happen with clothing as well. But 
yeah, as small businesses, please see this as an opportunity because obviously, Therese, you were saying before we started recording that some of the brands you're speaking to have seen never had better sales during this time. Yeah. Yeah, I think people, I mean, we we love shopping as a society. We want to shop. But I think now people are making a conscious effort of supporting smaller businesses, businesses that have a bit more thought to them in terms of like ethical and sustainability and that sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. And closer to home too. Yeah, because people are at home as well. And going back to Next, they uh, Simon Wolfson announced that he's going to close because um, nobody wants to buy a brand new outfit when they're sat at home. But I think what he should have said is we're closing because, I mean, the staff are in danger in the warehouse, which is fair enough. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's not true that people don't want to buy a new outfit sat at home. They might not want to buy it right now because they're in shock and panic. They're focusing on food. They're settling into a new routine, having their kids at home. But like you said, as long as they're still earning money, which most people luckily are in the UK with the furlough scheme, Mm. there's still money coming in so you'll still have that desire to spend Uh, people are still having birthday parties on zoom or skype or they'll go to a bingo party on instagram live or whatever so you're not spending on dinners out or drinks out so you're doing that in your home so you actually have probably if you are getting paid, you might even have more money to spend. Yeah, like no prayers that are like ten pound a day. <laughs> right. <laughs> no training. You know, like you're, you're not spending a hundred and eighty, two hundred quid a month on your tube pass mm, or yeah. whatever. Depends on you live, of course, where you live. But yeah. you know, you are having other like you know, like normal life costs, like cinema tickets. Mm-hmm that sort of thing it's not happening so what are you going to do when you're bored at home yeah shop yeah I think it's literally it's going to turn to you know where people that do feel secure actually buy more or spend more time choosing what they want to buy mm. from who and even like the delivery times as well, where people have said, I'm only going to the post office once a week. Yeah. I think mm. that's nice that people aren't expecting that next day delivery Amazon service. And I do mm. hope that that will carry on as well, because that immediacy was becoming a bit gross. Um, yeah. And especially when we are talking about like handcrafted, handmade pro- products, these things can take time. Yeah. Um, and just making people wait for it. I hope that will like there's lots of things that you hope will carry on after this. Like the butchers in my village has a queue outside it every Saturday. Like I hope that carries on and mm. things like that. Um, that real yeah. focus on local community for sure. Yeah. yeah the local Facebook groups are ma- like, you know, it's real community spirit now. Yeah. Mm. The street WhatsApp group. Fuzzy. <laughs> 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 Yeah, but like people are going like, where can you get flour? Oh, you could get flour here. And here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. flour. People that never spoken before. Catherine, you always say that um, 
it's about going back to like it's almost like retail was right in the first place I don't know if you've ever watched like Mrs Maisel when she's in the department store that really incredible customer service and people shopping where they live and in their local neighborhood yeah like everyone had it right the first time and we've just messed it up (laughs) we just go back to that it's like the industrialization of retail started in the 1950s if you know before 1950 there were four self-service shops in the UK and then in the 1950s it was the year that a lot of really big retailers started so in the US for example you know Walmart, Target, um, Coles a lot of the really big chains started in the 50s and it almost became this like industrial complex and now it's almost you know it's fascinating to see where it will end up because we're kind of going back to people here in their communities they're in their neighborhoods people are working you know literally working from home it's about you know um, actually the kind of the big industrial scale ones are the ones that actually can't function anymore. And the ones where it's somebody in their house and they're packaging things up and dropping it through the post box, they're, they're still functioning. So it, yeah. is, it is really interesting. And, and also, yeah, people looking to support them. So there's a local shop to me that sells really beautiful homewares. And um, the owner has said, if any of my customers who obviously know me and trust me are willing to do this she's putting on products that you can buy now and then when it reopens you can go and pick them up and she is doing it on Instagram and and putting them up and then people are put and she's sending them out a PayPal link and it's helping her keep going it's helping people support her um, and it's giving people something to look forward to when this is all over and I think people are really hungry right now in a way that I've not seen before to support small and local they're really looking almost for like yes okay I can do this because they don't feel like you know putting more money into Sainsbury's pocket or you know a lot of them you know and actually actually a lot of the kind of small local corner shops were better stocked during all of this I mean I know it's because everyone thought about going to the yeah Yeah. like people realizing that actually these smaller shops have such a critical role during this time so this is like the small business revolution instead of the industrial yeah, revolution I like that and um, point of view as well um I know Catherine and I were talking about this on her retail summit um live and it was about the fact that everybody's buying soft textures, puzzles, coziness, like at a time in this year, so say now we're in April, everyone should be switching their messaging to like holidays and sun lotion and swimsuits and things. But it's really interesting that it's basically rewound almost to like November kind of messaging where yeah. it's like candles, bath bombs, like everything. Mm. So just making sure that you are pushing the right message to the tone. But then equally, when we do come out of it, at the end of flip back. Yeah, the end of World War Two, Dior released this um outfit called the New Look. And it had like huge amounts of fabric because he was so fed up of rationing throughout the war. I think something similar will happen, but obviously it won't be like excess fabric because that's not sustainable. But the idea of like maximalism getting super dressed up, you know, like yeah. how people did used to in the 50s they would like go for it I think yeah. that's going to come out of this as well everybody's going to be so desperate to put a ball gown on and yeah I did doing our lives in our like fancy wear I did an IGTV this week and, and basically it was talking about three reasons people are still buying and it's 
to protect, to connect and to distract. And basically people are buying to kind of protect not just, you know, having food and medicine and and health, but also to kind of that cocooning sense that you were talking about, Elizabeth. And then but also to protect their way of life. So people are doing things like buying fancy coffee machines because they can't go to Starbucks or buying Mm. um you know home hair dye because they (laughs) can't go to the salon um and then they want to connect that's why we're seeing so much gifting so you know another thing that people can do for sure is really making sure that if you can post something to somebody else or on somebody else's behalf wrapped with a note that you make that really clear on your website because everybody's looking to do those like get well soon or Mm. um, thinking of you at this difficult time that's really really key and then the other one is distract which is you know puzzles home edge you know flashcards for the kids crafting yeah Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sewing patterns yes so and also we've seen some businesses that would normally sell a fully finished product are actually selling the components and instructions and selling it as a kit because people you know they want to know how to pull their own candle or this kind of thing because um, it's about a new hobby or um, I mean those of us who aren't simultaneously trying to homeschool their kids as well as everything else and looking yeah. at new hobbies yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I mean people are baking more than ever before I think yeah yeah oh yeah you know, everyone's baking banana bread why is that that's so random so many rotten bananas going off yeah yeah I, I mean that's why I made it how much how much did you pay for your bag of yeast the other day Catherine? <laughs> let's not talk about that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's not, that's, uh, yeah, I'm not, for I'm another not day. That. yeah, for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, think about like, with the going back to the bigger retailers, what do we think is going to happen when we come out of this? How are they going to deal with this? Are they, how are they going to bounce back? What are their needs going to be in a bigger business when they open back up again? Well, I think that it's going to be tricky because it's going to be basically a bit of a nightmare because the everyone's going to have the wrong stock for starters. So um, mm-hmm. they would have bought everything thinking they were going to trade through the spring. I mean, we don't know necessarily when everything's going to open back up, but let's assume that it's more like the summer. Then, then there's going to be knock-on effects on the supply chain. So I think generally speaking, they won't have much budget, but I think it's not un, it's not completely un thinkable that they're going to need some stuff because they're going to have like pockets they're going to have pockets of the wrong thing like they might have the totally overall cash too much in cash but within that they're going to be things that they need that they don't have so um I think they're gonna... that, I read something the other day that was like this might actually reset it to be the right time because say we're in April now and everyone starts bringing out swimsuits and things I know they bring them out, but it's actually a bit annoying because it's still a bit chilly yeah. outside. And it's like, by the time you go on holiday in August, all the good stuff is sold. Mm, so yeah. they were saying maybe it might work out. <laughs> Me, like the ray of sun, trying to bring a bit of positivity. But um, yeah, maybe by the time they bring the coats in, it will actually be cold. Like they're not going to bring <laughs> coats in because <laughs> they just want to be the first person. But yeah, I think there will be a lot of opportunities for smaller British brands because mm. if you have the possibility to deliver stock, because they're going to have to fill, you know, small orders. Yeah, 
Well, I'm thinking they're going to have to have taking smaller volumes of things because they're not going to have that much money or time to to make the ranges look somewhat cur- current and relevant and fresh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, one supermarket have said that they are going to try and keep all their stock in shipping containers for next summer. Well, um, that's good because I, yeah. what else would happen? Like we, well, unfortunately, most consumers probably don't know, but that would probably be wasted otherwise. Yeah. Um, and so that's really sad. To your point about closer to home manufacturing as well, I think that's the other thing, going back to the Industrial Revolution, that we had it right first time, is that everything was produced closer to home. Um, So if they do have shorter windows to sell it in, they're going to want to cut right back on the transport lead time. Mm. Um, So people, I think, might potentially book more in the UK as well, which would be good. Yeah, I just think that there's... Opportun- there will be opportunities coming up, especially since the consumers are hopefully going to continue wanting to support, you know, small smaller brands. So the, yeah. the bigger shops are going to need to fill their shops with some of them to to kind of continue to speak to that customer. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But so I, I, I don't think it's all negative. You no. know, yes, it's challenged now and. Um, if you have been let down by a big retailer, that is a challenge. But it's, you know, what can you do? You can lay down and do nothing and let it all go to waste or you can fight for it and pivot and try to do the best you can with the situation. Try to sell the stock direct to your consumers. Mm. If you haven't had that before or, you know, do whatever you can to be creative with your sales. Yeah, there's a girl that I follow online uh, who's one of my business besties who's Emma at Bowtie and she said she's got so much fabric. Nobody's uh, having weddings at the moment and she makes yeah, bow ties for weddings, but she's trying to make like fabric wall hangings with some positive slogans and freehand embroidery. So definitely to your point, Therese, about pivoting, like please don't just stick your heels in the mud and think this is mm. what I do and they, people should be buying it and they should be supporting me. Like try and um, be open to the ideas on how you can use your materials that you've got. And um, yeah. there, there is still money flowing and I've, I think try not to get sucked into the doom and gloom, like you were saying, about yeah. everything's ruined because there's some people have never been richer, you know, like going back to the butcher at the end of the road. I bet he's never made so much money in all his life. Like the farm <laughs> shop had no. a few outside of it. I've never seen that. People who work in PR, they've never been busier. Um, journalism. And so knowing that there are people out there still making a lot of money, if not, like some people will come out of this better off. Um, So, yeah. And I think as as well, you know, just recognising that if you, let's say that you are a heavily wholesale dependent business, and then obviously wholesale has is really difficult right now. So if you can build up, if this is the kind of um, nudge you need to work on your direct to customer yeah. direct to consumer and then let's say you build that and you work on it and you you know because if you're selling the other thing I'd like to say as well is if you have got a thriving wholesale business it's because or you had prior to this or you will do again it's because your product sells well because people don't buy 
products to put in their shops unless they believe they will sell. So if you can sell it to wholesalers, you can sell it to your customers. Absolutely. It may be a question of building your audience. So if you build that up and you, you know, direct customer has a much, much higher margin, as we all know. So if you build that up and then wholesale comes back online in whichever form it does later on in the year, then you've got quits in yeah quits in <laughs> like look how much stronger your business will be yeah yeah I had an order today from the local wholesale nursery of like compost and things and you know they just uploaded a few excel spreadsheets to their website essentially and you email or phone your order and they deliver it but they never do that normally yeah. but they have plans that they would otherwise have to waste so it's brilliant and going back um, to that direct to consumer thing as well, like there's never been so many people online ever. No. Um, obviously, people are at work, and but they're not at work; they're now online. Um, so, trying to build your audience during this time, yeah, there's more competition because there's more people online, but there's also more people online. Like my friend said the other day that Pinterest had its highest ever views, yes. highest number yeah. of users on their website mm. at one time ever this yeah. weekend since it launched like 15 years ago um so wasn't, didn't wasn't that me didn't I tell you that sorry no but looking at new opportunities on Pinterest advertising yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and advertising in general. I mean, social media advertising, anecdotally, I'm certainly hearing from people who run ads that you, especially where big retail, bigger people maybe have pulled out, um, you know, people, if your product's good and it's working and it's selling and you're, you're running ads, then, you know, um, people are seeing great results. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think there's so much, you know, if you approach it from a positive way, you think outside the box. Don't assume people don't want your products just because there's a this uncertainty going on mm. and that they don't want to spend money because there are always people that mm. want to buy things. Yeah. Yeah. And I but, um, you know, fine-tune your messaging around it, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. I think apparently beauty brands have never failed a recession either. Like the the sales of beauty always go up. Um, mm. So like the day after 9-11, apparently beauty spiked. It's just, it's a really random, but I think people do just want to make themselves feel good, like from the inside yeah. out. So Yeah, they call it the lipstick effect. Yeah. Well, yes, and then they changed to like for a while it was nail polish. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like at the moment nail art was super trendy. It almost became the new lipstick, yeah. and now it's lipsticks again. I think. Yeah, or hair accessories. Hair accessories are cool. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and you can see them on a Zoom call. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so what are we saying? We're saying, you know, stay positive and, and just... Pivot if needed. Yeah. So how can people find out more about you guys and where can they find you? Uh, well, you can find me at Future Retail UK on Instagram. I've also got a Facebook group, Female Founders in Retail, which if you Google that, it will come up. And uh, my website is www.futureretail.world. Yeah, 
And um, I'm at Elizabeth Styles UK on Instagram. I've got a podcast and a Facebook group called The Fashion Feed. And my website is www.elizabethstyles.co.uk. That's brilliant. Thank you very, very much for taking your time out Thank with you. very short notice. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. <laughs> it is. I figured, you know, people want to hear about it. So, yeah. Absolutely. Hopefully, it will help some people and make people feel a little bit inspired or yes. action driven. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for tuning in and for listening. And thank you so much to Elizabeth and Catherine for coming on the show with a rather short notice. I will be back in a few days. I've decided that. For this season, I am going to be releasing episodes as I record them rather than waiting and making it a weekly thing because I think this is the sort of thing that I would want to hear and what I want to listen to right now. So hopefully that is the same for you. Of course, if it's not, then please don't feel that you have to. This is a podcast. You can tune in whenever you want to. It's not here to overwhelm you or add to your workload. I also do want to just say that I am working as normal. So even if right now is maybe not the time to be pushing for new sales, there is still work to be done on your wholesale. And if you need some help with that, please reach out and we can have a chat about it. Catherine and I have a online course bundle where we talk you through all the steps that you need to take to start to wholesale. If you sign up by the 10th of April, this, which is this Friday, we will invite you to a special webinar where we talk you through what you can get going with right now and which bits to leave until a little bit later and also if there's any tweaks that you should make considering where we are at the moment. On top of that, we will also invite you to a Q&A webinar in June so that you can have some time to complete the course and then come online and ask us any questions that you have. All the details about the course can be found on our websites and I will leave the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in and I hope to see you back here in a few days.